and welcome to Fitter and Faster. My name is Emma-Kate Libberry, your host and managing editor here at Triathlete Magazine. Each month on Fitter and Faster, we tackle one triathlon training topic in depth, giving you everything you need to know. This month, we're focusing on running, and we'll be talking about run training, technique, injuries, gear, and plenty more. Now, fall or winter is often a great time for triathletes to tackle a run-specific training block. Maybe running is your relative weakness and you want to build volume, durability and strength. Or maybe you just live somewhere where it's harder to get out on the bike at this time of year. So it makes it a great time to focus on running. Either way, we've got a lot of info packed into this show to help you cover some fun running miles in the months ahead. In the show, we'll be chatting with run coach David Roach, who works with runners of all abilities from pros to newbies and everyone in between. He has some really fascinating advice and insights on how to best approach your run training in a truly smart, fun, and intelligent way. More on him in a bit. And of course, it wouldn't be fitter and faster without our gear up section, so we'll have our executive editor and gear guru, Chris Foster, joining us later in the show to talk about some of his favorite running gear and gadgets. And be warned, Chris is a serious runner and a run geek, so if you're keen to learn more about run training and the tech that goes with it, then he is definitely the dude to tune into. More from us after this short break. The Velocity Cycling app knows that all of your training inside is to be better outside. And if your indoor training is only focused on getting stronger, then you're missing the main goal, which is getting faster. Becoming faster is a skill you can and should be training during your indoor sessions by focusing on key contributors to speed, like body position, effective power transfer, gearing efficiency, and drag reduction. Velocity will help you to get fast, faster. In order to get you to faster, Velocity is grounded in science with expert instructors who deliver engaging workouts that make you a better cyclist. Science-driven data delivers insights to develop power, skill, and speed while competing with friends to push yourself to your limits. Not only does Velocity focus on your unique physiology to train specific energy systems to meet your goals, but it also makes you a better, faster cyclist. To combat the boredom and loneliness of training in your pain cave, Velocity streams live instructors to lead your rides with the why behind the work, as well as to let you connect with friends and like-minded riders through live video to motivate and inspire you. An added bonus is you can see your friends' real-time data, which helps fuel friendly competition and fun through the mini competitions within each workout. If you can't make a live ride, then there are on-demand and on-call replays of all the rides, so you can do them when it works best for you. With Velocity, better starts inside, so you can get to fast, faster. David Roach is a run coach who works with runners of all abilities through his coaching company, Some Work or Play. With his wife and fellow coach, Megan, he hosts the Some Work All Play podcast and wrote the book, The Happy Runner. He also writes for Trail Runner magazine. He's been coaching for eight years and running for the last 15, ever since he quit football back in college. And whilst he says he's definitely a trail runner at heart, his favorite race to enter is a trail 50K, he most definitely knows his stuff when it comes to training and racing for road, track, or trail. I was seriously inspired and fascinated by our chat here. David is one of those rare coaches who blends deep scientific knowledge with an emotionally intelligent approach. He talks us through a typical run week for some of his athletes at this time of year and some of the things to focus on now if you want to pop out into 2022 as a stronger, smarter runner. Okay, that's enough from me. You can find out all about it for yourself in our chat here with David. David, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, and such a cool audience to reach. You know, usually I'm talking 
almost exclusively to runners, trail runners, ultra runners. And yeah. um, I'm a huge fan of triathlon and cycling um, in a little bit as a coach, but also just as a fan of the sport. So yeah. it's a great opportunity and I appreciate it so much. Yes, us triathletes, we're a, we're a bit of a different breed. We're uh, <laughs> jack of all trades, masters of none, and uh, never really know, quite know which box to put ourselves in. So we find ourselves kind of all over the place. And when it comes to running, so when it comes to running, it's really fa- I always find it really fascinating to, to speak to a, um, you know, what I would call a pure run coach, because you obviously have an, like you said, you have an appreciation of triathlon and multi-sport, but you are also coming at it with a very different perspective than we do with, when we're training for uh, three or three sports. So, um, but, and obviously in the time of year we're at, you know, for pretty much in the Northern hemisphere anyway, you know, in a nor- I say quote unquote, in a normal year, we would be coming to the, you know, this is typically like the time where triathletes are resting, recovering from a season of racing. And for a lot of triathletes, they take maybe two or four weeks off. And then it's the time of year when everybody seems to get inspired. Or a lot of people seem to get inspired about running. Uh, whether it's their relative weakness and they want to make you know, make some really big gains or whether it's just fun to hit the trails because, you know, you've been doing very specific sessions all year. Um, and so with that in mind, with like the sort of off-season and this time of year in mind, the first question I had for you was really how you uh, advise your runners and, and you as a coach, how you advise people approach the off-season from a, from a running point of view. That amazing question. And I think what the triathletes are experiencing that you mentioned is a really salient point because running is an incredible opportunity, not just to improve run, but also bike and overall aerobic development in a way that is a massive bang for buck. Like I I know triathletes often work in the hourly hours per week framework, Mm -hmm. um, but an hour spent running is worth so much from aerobic growth point of view. Um, a story that I think is really illustrative on this point is an athlete on the team named Tabor Scholl who mm-hmm. is a top runner. Um, she's an absolute beast, can, can do it all. Um, but when she got an injury in running, um, off of just bike commuting, she hopped into the Mount Evans Ascent bike race, which mm-hmm. you know always has a stacked pro field, and did the second fastest time ever. Um, Whoa. Stunning time. And, and that's not to say that bike-specific training isn't essential and indispensable. It's just to say running goes more towards biking then biking mm-hmm. will go towards running. And mm-hmm. so as you're going towards off season, running is an amazing opportunity, not just to improve your run, which can happen immediately. And I'll talk about that in a sec, but to improve that, that leg too. And, you know, have some crossover with swimming though, as a, you know, as a type of person that sinks very readily, I am mm-hmm. um, not particularly, uh, the person to speak on that subject. So <laughs> I will probably get shot down for saying this, but I would say, I would, I would, uh, I hesitate to say it maybe, but a lot of yeah. runners do tend to, a lot of pure runners do tend to sink when they get in the pool. Not, not all of them, but a lot of runners do, yeah, do tend to struggle with, well, uh, if they, when they come into swimming, you know, like not so much now, now, like the younger generations of triathletes coming in, they're, they're bred as triathletes. Like they come in with swim, bike, run, you know, they're doing it from the time they're seven or whatever, but like, my generation, if you were coming from a run background and you tried to learn to swim or you tried to get faster swimming, it was, it was something that was challenging. Yeah. I, I love the way USA triathlon recruits people based on like benchmarks in both sports mm-hmm. uh, because it really shows, yeah. I mean, that also shows that bike might not necessarily be the place to focus your off season because if USA triathlon is recruiting the next generation via those, via swim and run, it shows that, okay, the limiters long-term are probably those sports 
Though, I mean, yeah. that also applies because they're looking a little more towards draft legal. So confounding variables. But the the needless to say, the, the running is such a huge freaking opportunity. And I think that sometimes, especially in triathlon, based on what I've read, there's a little bit of a fundamental misunderstanding about how to approach these aerobic base building style periods that you might see in an off season. Yeah. Um, and so I'll start with a framework that many people have probably heard of, like MAF training uh, or something mm -hmm. similar where you're capping around aerobic threshold. So the MAF formulation is 180 minus age, though even if you're using a very specific formula to dial in what that number actually is for your physiology, um, you know, and then dialing everything beneath that all the time. Mm -hmm. And I, the number of times I have athletes reach out on, on email just asking questions, saying, I've done all this training. I've increased my training volume. I've done all this MAF and I'm slower. Why? What happened? And, uh, you know, if I had a dime for every time someone asked me that, uh, you know, I would probably be like living on a yacht somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and just back up slightly. What's, yeah. what do you, when you're saying MAF, explain to us what you mean by MAF. So MAF is, you, you even if you're not familiar with the term for a listener, um, it's the idea that basically all of your training in a period of time should be easy. Um, right. where you just keep it all capped under a certain bit and that's your base building period. Um, and you know, it's it was popularized by a triathlete. That's I think it's a little bit more common in that world. Um, Mark Allen back in the day. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, athletes like Mark Allen, not not just elite athletes, but similar people, are not limited by their biomechanical and neuromuscular output because they're outliers to begin with. Their physiology wants to go fast, so you've put enough wood onto that fire, and it's just going to keep burning. But what about the people whose fire wants to go out in the first place, which I think is most of us. I know it's me personally. Um, the answer is you have to constantly feed back that aerobic base, the pure aerobic base, with your maximal output and speed. And that's a place that I see a lot of triathletes that you know I've um, been aware of, and I still uh, lurk on the slow twitch forums. Like <laughs> sometimes it's a, it's a dangerous place to lurk. Oh my god, it's so amazing though. Coming from running, it's so much. It's an incredible place. I love it. Um, yeah, compared to I'm life, kidding. It's yeah. heaven on earth um, compared to the running version. Of the <laughs> that's statement. very true. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Um, we have this conversation a lot, yeah. Yeah, but so the idea being that as you're approaching this, this time, there's a few different interventions uh, to take. The first is adding um, consistency and frequency. Mm -hmm. So yep. for runners that aren't already running five times or for athletes that aren't already running five times per week, now's the time to do it. It's going to be okay. extremely hard to progress anywhere near your long-term potential without getting up to five. Um, with six being ideal though, for triathletes, I think five with a couple cross training days or, or even yep. doubles will be helpful. Um, two is volume. Um, you know, there's no substitute for that easy volume, keeping it easy. These MAF style frameworks can be helpful. Just make sure you're still focusing on good form and quick strides and things like that. Like you don't want to become a slogger as you're yeah. learning to run easy. But then yeah. the third element is the key one. Um, and that's the maximal power output slash speed, all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And the easiest way to do this, um, especially for triathletes, but for all runners is through hill strides and strides. Um, most likely in this off season, a few times per week, you should be doing four to six by 20 seconds fast, usually uphill um, for athletes that are getting into it, maybe more flat when you're starting to think about neuromuscular adaptations later. Um, but the idea is you're building from the ground up, but then you're also keeping the ceiling really damn high. And yeah. if you're able to do those two things at the same time, your aerobic threshold pace will go up, not just your aerobic threshold, like the raw numbers. 
and as that happens, like true, like magic happens on a cellular level. That sounds, yeah, that sounds very familiar. And I, and I think, um, I think what happens for a lot of triathletes is you get caught in the murky middle, you know, versus, you know, versus like spending time at the, at that, like you say, in the base and then doing that sort of real quality, short, but sharp, high end stuff. It's very easy for people to kind of get stuck in that, uh, you know, zone three murky gray area. Um, and so I think, so what I'm hearing you say there is to really make it distinctive. So, um, you've got that base building aerobic work that's very very easy um and then you've you've got a few times a week you, you're hitting some stri- hill strides that are short and sharp but kind of keeping the keeping the engine revving type thing yeah not just keeping the engine revving like i think off season is the time to actually make sure you are the fastest version of yourself at that mm-hmm. snapshot in time um yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean you need to be in 5k pr shape it just means like if we're on a playground racing to the top of that hill over there and you're not able to feel confident, um, you're also leaving some physiological gains on the table that are mm-hmm. really, really important. So mm-hmm. as an athlete thinks about structuring this, I'm assuming that you know they've taken a break after the season or they're getting to a point where they're thinking about how to build their running. You mm-hmm. start with that pure base so you can stay healthy and build you know all the aerobic adaptations from like mitochondrial content to capillarization and uh, your ability to process oxygen that really matters you raise that top end you don't need to do that like sh- extreme polarization too long mm-hmm. just something like two to four weeks of making sure you're ready for the next step mm-hmm. and then the next step is where like the true fun starts to happen where you begin to put them together and work on okay i can run really fast I have, I'm building my endurance in my aerobic system. How can I put them together to improve my velocity at aerobic threshold and lactate mm-hmm. threshold? Um, mm-hmm. And those running economy metrics are the holy grail because, you know, I think if you look at someone and, and triathletes and cyclists and everything face this problem an extreme amount because like a triathlete is an aerobic monster. Um, but to access those aerobic capabilities they have to use way more energy because their running economy isn't fully developed. So winter is the time of running economy. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, I think, the most fun thing because you can have adaptations that aren't just over, okay, this is going to take me four months. You can do this in two weeks and start to see massive improvements from like dropping a minute on your 5K even if you've not developed this before. And even if you have, if by training like a runner, you can see like pretty immediate gains that'll apply across the board okay well you've definitely got every uh, triathlete in the rooms is pricked up with that with the, the the promise of a minute off a 5k time um so what do you so talk to us about what that means then how how we improve our running economy in as much as in as little as two weeks because that's yeah. uh that's yeah. a, that sounds super appealing to me yeah it sounds like a uh like a four-hour work week type life hack book but i'm saying this yeah. from you know for those that might not have been exposed to like the stuff that my wife, Megan and I do, who's my co-coach and she's brilliant. It's all based in like the science of it. And I think often there's a mistake thinking that the aerobic system is what drives everything. Mm-hmm. And that is true. It is over 10 year timeframes, which is really mm-hmm. what we're thinking about on the long-term scale. But the aerobic system alone doesn't mean crap when it comes to running, um, at least like across athletes, because you think about like Lance Armstrong, when he, when he was done with the tour, he went to do the New York City Marathon and mm-hmm. he's coached by Alberto Salazar. I'm sure he was taking every drug known to man and horse at the time. And, you know, he ran a 249. Great time, 
But when you consider that the other best aerobic athletes that have ever lived are running two hours, it gives perspective that, oh, his running economy wasn't very good, even though his aerobic system was incredible. And a lot of triathletes and a lot of athletes overall can become, find themselves in that place. So the aerobic system does take a long time to adapt, Mm -hmm. but the things that don't take a long time to adapt are the neuromuscular system and the biomechanical systems and how they feed back within each other. And that's Mm -hmm. why running is so unique. Swimmers would probably also echo this I can't mm-hmm. speak to swim training too much, but I bet a lot of people that learn to swim see immediate gains very like rapidly, like if they take mm-hmm. swim lessons or something. Yes. And essentially what learning to run fast is, is taking run lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nervous system is what drives all of performance, not just the movements of running, the biomechanics of it, but also how the body actually puts out power in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the reason that these gains can be so quick and so um, like of such a high magnitude is that the body is outputting power in a totally different way using the same amount of substrate. So mm-hmm. you're not using the same amount of energy and you're feeling like you're doing the same thing, yet you're getting two inches more per stride mm-hmm. or, or something similar. And that's how you get massive gains really, really freaking fast. And so how do we, and so how do we actually achieve that? Like what, do, what does that look like in an applied setting? So like, how do I, how do I, I guess what I'm saying is how do I improve my run economy then? How do I get these, how do I achieve these neuromuscular and biomechanical gains? So at the, at the core, you know, the aerobic system is the background pulse mixed with the high end stuff. So that's something that I think every triathlete should be doing all year round. The stuff we already talked about that's first mm-hmm. two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. What you start to incorporate in after that is raising the actual velocity at VO2 max or like output at VO2 max if you're going uphills and not on mm-hmm. flats. Um, not because VO2 max matters, you know, as probably most listeners know, like it's not something that's particularly going to improve after you've started training it, 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 and if it does improve, it'll level off rather quickly. It's a genetic variable largely. Um, but your running economy, how much output you do at that effort level can undergo pretty rapid alterations. Um, and that is the primary place that is mediated by these neuromuscular and biomechanical factors, because you're putting out such a large quantity of uh power and strain on your body so it's a great place to focus the adaptations um two the other big thing on on velocity of vo2 max and similar is that if you're focusing on long intervals and tempos unless an athlete is already super duper fit they're going to be relatively inefficient um Mm -hmm. kind of the tipping point that we've seen in all of our data there's some interesting studies on critical power that also reflect this in, in in cycling and other things it's kind of three minutes under three minutes for intervals, athletes are usually able to maintain relatively high outputs without mm-hmm. severe fades that aren't predicted by their aerobic system. Above that, it takes a little bit of background fitness already developed and experience. And so tempo really does play a role, um, things, threshold work and all that. But for runners, because it's such a uh, activity that's based on your ability to put out power, we mm-hmm. actually want to put out power. And so what Velocity Beta 2 Max really looks like can be super simple is uh, one or two workouts a week of one to three minute intervals with like anywhere from half to equal rest. Um, mm-hmm. and it can, it only has to total anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes total uh, of, of overall work, mm-hmm. actually practicing going faster and, uh, embracing that element of it, of it rather than practicing the ability to withstand more fatigue, because mm-hmm. I don't care how much fatigue an athlete can withstand outside of like the very specific block before a race, I want them not to feel the freaking fatigue in the first place. Right. Um, 
because that makes anything possible. And that's kind of, you know, that framework is what we've used for our pro athletes that, that progress long-term, but it also, I think, applies even more to people that are thinking about, okay, how do I progress, like, from the beginner level up to middle of the pack? I think that's mm-hmm. where you're going to see, like, a minute per 5K might just be scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, firstly, that is that's all fascinating. And I think that's really, really interesting because I think people do, triathletes do get um, kind of preoccupied with doing these big, longer, like long tempo runs or longer, you know, longer intervals. And like you say, they just lead to fatigue and not a whole lot else. Um, whereas those snappy kind of like one to three minute intervals, I can, I can definitely see. Yeah. I mean, I can definitely see how that would uh, yield big gains without piling on a bunch of fatigue that you've already got from training two other sports and maybe throwing in strength sessions and, and life on top of that. So, um, so that sounds, that sounds very smart and very economical and very, almost very, um, yeah, just very astute to me. Your point is fascinating. And I think it's a wonderful dichotomy to highlight the big issue here. So bike training, you know, functional and threshold power training, not my area of research expertise, but I know enough about it to understand you know, a good example, classic two by 20 minute with five mm-hmm. minute recovery workout. It's a bread and yep. butter staple. You know, if a cyclist is motivated enough to dig themselves into dust, they could probably do that almost every week and mm-hmm. still continue improving to a certain point as long as they're well-rounded training. That same workout for a runner would almost certainly result in stagnation mm-hmm. almost instantaneously outside of very advanced pro athletes or very mm-hmm. talented people. Why yeah. is that? That's super weird, right? And I think it gets back to in biking, the machine is the thing that is yes. actually putting out the power. So, you know, 50 watts on a bike and 400 watts on the bike kind of look the same. It's it's all the same motion with small variations. I know that's oversimplifying it, but it's not that substantial. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas running, totally different. Very similar to swimming in that regard, whereas swimmers, yeah. you know, will often do so many 50s and 100s. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes with running, that is... Uh, underemphasized. And I, and with that said, I don't think athletes should be on the track or anything. I think that's probably too high of an injury risk unless someone's um, working with a coach. All of this can be done on hills as well, um, where you're working on, okay, how can I actually put out more power and giving myself full recovery basically um, mm-hmm. to be ready for the next interval? Because the goal isn't to accumulate a maximum amount of fatigue throughout the workout. Actually, mm-hmm. when athletes finishing workouts feeling pretty good, but kind of wringing the sponge fully clear when it comes to, okay, that's enough stress at that effort level to elicit adaptations. So, yeah. um, you know, maybe, uh, would it help to like, say like how a, tra- a template week might w- look in this? Yes. Race? Yeah. That would be really, that would be fascinating. Yeah. That'd be really awesome. interesting. So, um, and this is the type of, I know this seems super simple, but I mean, the weird thing about endurance training is it is repeating something super simple with minor variations right. for 10 to 20 years and finding yeah. out, oh crap, I've come so freaking far. Um, and so this general template is something that we've used for athletes from, you know, Olympic trials runners and people that have won like the biggest ultras and trail races and mountain running championships in the world to people that are just starting out. So mm-hmm. like Monday, uniform rest day is something we're really passionate about. We can always talk about. Um, Tuesday would be easy with fast strides. So something like, you know, eight miles easy with six by 20 second hills. Mm-hmm. Um, those have full recovery like a minute or two run down. Um, and, the, and on those, you're actually learning to put out power. So something like what you would race an 800 or a mile in. So you're not sprinting, mm-hmm. you're running smoothly. Like one of those people you see on TV, you're really embodying that. Um, yeah. Wednesday would be a workout and all the workouts like that I'm talking about here, we're saying, 
okay, you want to actually focus on practicing uh, the the action of going fast. So a good example might be, you know, with a warm up and cool down, 15 by one minutes fast, one minute's easy. That seems mm-hmm. so simple and so like. And I've got to say that sounds so fun too. Oh, and that's that sounds like a lot of fun compared to a lot of sessions that I used to do as a triathlete. <laughs> yeah, and the the weird thing is, like, um, if I could only give one desert island workout forever, it would oh, be- you're stealing some of my questions for later in the show. Oh, but- sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'll, I'll I'm kidding. I'll, I'm kidding. Go on, go on. I can gain multitudes. I'll change my idea by then. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, the thing about the the woman at intervals is every single athlete can um, you know will level up with the workout. So. Mm-hmm. Um, just the other week, there's an athlete on the team who's a 214 marathoner who did that same workout. He tacked on 30 second hill strides after it, which is something I also like is like 15 by one minutes on one minutes, easy five minutes, easy five by 30 second hills to work on mm-hmm. power at the end. Since the, the one minutes fast have a little bit more of a focus on the neuromuscular end. Um, mm-hmm. and also had a beginner do the same thing and they were averaging 10 minute pace, but that was a huge breakthrough for them. And they set their five KPR within the context of that workout. And wow, um, cool. it's the type of thing that can be repeated constantly because we're not worried about tapping out uh, adaptations at all because we're not thinking just about the aerobic system. And that's where mm-hmm. the, the issues come in and the misconceptions, I think, sometimes about running training. It's that, you know, when people are like, oh, well, isn't my VO2 max going to cap out? It's like, no, yes, for sure. Or isn't my lactate threshold going to cap out? It's like, probably. Um, but I don't care about the ability to withstand fatigue. Um, if we're pushing back where the fatigue actually happens the entire time. And then later on, we start to worry about that. And, you know, the sessions get really complicated with tempo that followed by intervals, followed by hills, all that good stuff. Um, but at its core, it's just, how can we get that point of fatigue, like, and raise it as high as we can, not the raw number, not the VO2 max number, not the, you know, millimoles per liter number on lactate threshold, but the actual output at those levels of fatigue. Um, mm-hmm. And the answer is you learn to run fast it's more like dancing or something than it is like you know bike or or very specific effort levels that you have to hold for an extended period of time um Mm -hmm. and so that that would be wednesday uh and then wednesday could have a double which could be another sport or a run or whatever um thursday would be easy with optional hill strides again seems like a lot right three days of faster work in a row but most of that work is still easy most of the running that you're doing in terms of time so easy and the intervals are sh- and the intervals are short, right? The work is short, so yeah, that's exactly. the, yeah. And then Thursday can also be a double, um, and then Friday, uh, easy again, which can also be a cross training day. So mm-hmm. you know, that would be a great time if you're just cross training to do that. Um, if you're looking for just five days a week, um, Saturday would be a long run where we almost always include some sort of work element, whether mm-hmm. that's a tempo at the beginning of the long run of like twenty minutes around one hour effort, or fartleks throughout of just one minute moderate every five minutes. And then Sunday, easy in strides again with optional crushing. And it's like, that's a lot of strides. Obviously it's like three times per week in that framework. And you could also do them mm-hmm. on Friday. Um, but you repeat that over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. usually what athletes find is that, oh shoot, all of that time I was telling myself short because I couldn't access my true like speed, my true power. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. by simply by raising that ceiling and then feeding that back into the aerobic system through the easy running and the light workouts, everything gets way, way easier at the same mm-hmm. output uh, level. And that's what I love most as a coach is because once an athlete's able to access that, running becomes way more fun. And yes. that's the hard part, I think, with running is that, especially for a lot of triathletes, is 
running can truly freaking suck. Um, yes. I didn't get into running until, I mean, it wasn't late in life, but it was late enough to remember what it felt like. And, yeah. you know, it can be the worst sport in the world. And that's why running, yeah. I love the running economy framework because we're not focusing on being better at withstanding the terribleness. We're focusing mm-hmm. on making it relatively like fun and transcendent yes. and having that correlate with, you know, better outputs, faster paces over time. Yeah. Running is one of those uh, sports that's horrible until it isn't, you know. Like, <laughs> it's still horrible yeah. uh, after it's, it isn't. All right. Yeah, true. But I think, yeah, when we're, when we're in that place of you're you're still trying to get that consistency or that frequency or, um, you know, when you're, when you're coming, maybe after like this time of year, or maybe some people in in a month's time when you're coming off of a break and you've got that kind of, you've spent longer on the couch than you have out running. Uh, and when you return to running, it just kind of feels like hard work and it feels like a slog. So yeah, getting back to that place where it feels where you kind of bounce out the door and you get, and, and you just feel, like you're dancing, like you say, that's cool. That's very, that's a very nice uh, way to put it. And I, um, I what you're saying there is an interesting, I don't want to like, make sure you bring me back if I go in a bad direction or a direction that's not relevant. Oh, there's no such thing as a bad direction, but yes. Okay. I will, well, I will. You know, what you're saying about someone that's been on the couch and then, or contrasted with someone bouncing out the door is also relevant in this process and how um, you think about, you, we're talking about biomechanics and neuromuscular system. That mm-hmm. isn't purely passive. And it is something that, especially triathletes, and you think about a little bit, is form and how your body is putting out that power in a Mm -hmm. uh, biomechanical sense. And, uh, you know, the problem here is there are studies that say, okay, you take a runner and you change their form and they Mm -hmm. get less economical. So Mm -hmm. you should just self-select whatever form works for you, stick with it, that's your form. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those studies suffer from, like, I think a pretty clear flaw, which is, well, what happens in a year? Um, and why do most high volume runners end up kind of looking similar, even if they mm-hmm. started from different places? Um, and I think the answer is that you re- if the only way you're able to actually do the higher volume over time, is kind of reinforce some of these movement patterns that mm-hmm. might feel a little bit unnatural. So I know for me, um, you know, cadence is the easy thing to pick up, but I was a natural runner at like 155, 160 cadence, um, mm-hmm. when I first started for years and, over time, I've been able to increase that to a more reasonable number. Um, mm-hmm. It's been fundamental to me. And it's not through trying to increase my cadence. It's through other form cues, uh, mainly involving like reducing my ground contact time and uh, shortening the lever as my knee pulls through, little things mm-hmm. like that. But making sure we're not doing all of this with bad form and slogging a little bit, because then you're not going to be able to like truly access the gains you can make. Plus, you're going to open your body up to more injuries. Right. So cadence, yeah, cadence is something I was going to come to. So, but we're here, we've, we've arrived. So let's talk about it. Um, because I know, you know, a lot, a lot of people talk about 180 or, you know, like yeah, around the one, magic 180 number. Um, and, but the question, the question being, and I mean, I, I think I know my answer and I think I know, or I know the answer, but like if, if you don't naturally run at 180 or 175, whatever, does it do you more harm than good to, to go chase that? Or is it more, is it, is it better? Is it smarter? Is it more intelligent to work on the form and let the cadence follow as a consequence of good form? You know, will your, will your cadence come up when you start improving your form? And then kind of part B to that question is how do you, how do you improve the form? Um, so yeah, that's, there's quite a lot. I just threw at you there, but, um, that's amazing. Yeah. And never chase a number. Like I think, um, those numbers one are derived from 
racers on the track in the Olympics. Uh, the right. numbers themselves are not particularly relevant. But what is relevant, I think, is the overall principle that mm -hmm. quick, light strides are what will help you unleash your true speed and not get injured. Um, mm -hmm. And how you achieve that number, like it does involve some amount of like making sure that you're actually turning over a bit faster. Um, mm -hmm. But what that turnover number ends up being could be anywhere from like, you know, 160 to 190. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, as long as it for you is like reinforces the low ground contact, contact mm -hmm. time and efficient power output, it's totally mm -hmm. fine. Um, and so the way the big form, I know this is going to sound like... <laughs> to maybe especially to those that have never never dealt with my crap before um is you prance like a show pony um and what i, I like mean, it yeah what i mean by that so the actual form cue that a biomechanics specialist would say is that you practice high heel recovery so mm -hmm. after your foot leaves the ground your heel elevates so that the lever formed by your femur and your tibia is kind mm -hmm. of narrow and um, you can think mm -hmm. about it you know the, the example that's always used in physics class of the uh, figure skater that spins around when their legs are closer, they mm -hmm. or when their arms are closer, they spin around faster. And then mm -hmm. when their arms are farther out, they spin around slower. Um, that's very similar to the way we're thinking about energy generation and running. So th it's not a it's a passive process. So you're not doing a butt kick by engaging your hamstring. You're mm -hmm. letting that knee bend. You're not keeping a straight leg pull through. Um, and that's the big thing that if you look at pro runners, they're all doing that, every single one. Um, for the most part, there are some like notable outliers, but almost all are doing it. And uh, that's what our brains are encoding most of the time as mm -hmm. cadence in good form um, mm -hmm. because it follows naturally. And, uh, you know, I actually think a good f drill for people is just to walk and try it. It, it feels terrible walking, but it gives you an idea of what it what it's like, which is, in, you know, usually we walk with relatively straight legs. Instead, after your leg leaves the ground, focus on bending your knee and pulling your knee forward. Others might call it knee drive, but knee drive mm -hmm. never worked for me or, um, in terms of the cue. And mm -hmm. combining that basic form uh, guidance with the idea that your arms stay relatively loose and relatively high. You don't want your hands dropping to your hips. Um, mm -hmm. That's not, not not like you also don't want to be a T-Rex, though our, yeah. our uh, coaching mascot is a T-Rex for that reason. Um, and a very slight forward lean, though not forward at the waist, you're just keeping your forward momentum going forward. You combine, and then you just loosen up your whole body as much as you possibly can in the process of that. You combine mm -hmm. all those cues and usually you'll find the cadence that works for you. Um, mm -hmm. But I can't emphasize enough for people that have never tried it, the high heel recovery, particularly when you're going fast, can make a pretty big difference on your levels of fatigue based on what we've found. We've done some like backyard testing with with athletes that has been uh, that that have struggled with this sort of thing, and it's been pretty relatively stunning, including on athletes that are not subject to like the placebo effect or anything. Uh, mm -hmm. We're measuring actual like values and outputs, um, like blood pricks and things. And so is this is this a time of year when you would set drills specifically within a session with for your runners or um yeah triathletes kind of who are keen to improve their form you know like a lot of triathletes can get almost preoccupied i think with oh i need to improve my run form or oh i look terrible in race photos uh you know i, I need my run form needs to improve um is is it something that you would target specifically or are you more of an advocate of run form comes with running well, if anyone looks good and run and <laughs> I need to know their secrets, but I still have not achieved that. Um, no. Yeah. 
No, I mean, for, for me, the, the best drill, so you, you know, these general principles and then the best drill on top of that is hill strides and strides. Um, that is like a real world process of putting out power. Um, Mm -hmm. we also have athletes do high knees before they run, uh, just as a little neuromuscular cue, uh, gets Mm -hmm. their feet going, popping off the ground a little bit. Mm -hmm. Nothing substantial. You can look up, if you're curious, you can look up, wake up legs online with my name, um, and find that routine. Um, but we limit, and then leg swings and things, which are just mobility exercises. We limit anything that involves non-running stresses that look kind of like running, but aren't running. Um, Mm -hmm. because the, the risk of doing those unsupervised Mm. greatly outweighs the benefits. And, uh, you know, what we've seen is if an athlete can put out pretty great sustainable power up a hill for 30 seconds and practice these things, they're going to fall into what works for their specific physiology and morphology, because we're, though we are all homo sapiens, we have very different bodies, Mm -hmm. Um, not just in terms of like the obvious things that we might be able to see, but also if we measured very specifically, like where, what the exact proportions of bones and things were. Mm -hmm. And that's why universal uh, principles really only apply to the motion, not like the motion generally, not the like specific ways that an individual might do it. So my, I always tell athletes, don't think about your form too much. Just make sure you're not making any of the most obvious mistakes. Um, But if you're anything like me, all the obvious mistakes are my natural setting um, because I didn't like grow up doing this. And like Like a lot of people, though, I mean, to be honest, like that is a lot of people. You know, a lot of people didn't grow up. You know, people who find adults who find themselves in triathlon now didn't grow up learning, you know, doing run trail. Oh, some of course did, but not everybody learned how to run perfectly on a track or did, you know, had run form cues and drills and things like that. So I think this is a very real, you know, applied real world, you know, real world setting that we're talking about that a lot of people can identify with for sure. Awesome. Yeah. No, I think, you know, that, especially as you're building volume, this becomes extra important. So I think sometimes if you're, just doing a little bit of running, it doesn't matter that much. And mm-hmm. you're not going to self-optimize as you increase volume. I don't know about, I actually think the science of self self-optimization is a little bit weak um, because it's also contrasted by the whole idea of gait retraining. So there's great studies out there that if you're just on a treadmill and you're getting mm-hmm. gait retraining cues that tell you that have force uh, measures hooked up to your tibia and tell you how to reduce force output through your tibia due to mm-hmm. like injury risk or just form because you want to run with light strides. And um, those adaptations that an athlete's able to do right on the treadmill stick around for a year. Um, so, and they're able to reduce uh, total loading by like 40 to 60%. So, I mean, that just shows that, yeah, some of us, if you're anything like me are doing things that are probably not super productive. Um, and as you increase volume, that becomes especially important. And it's one reason that like run doubles, I think can be helpful for people in very mm. small moderation, it's because yes. at a certain point, if you're just running and you're like, I can't do this, you're not, you're going to kind of figure out what I mean by prancy pony. Uh, <laughs> as weird as that sounds. Yep. Well, let's, um, let's pivot a little bit and talk about a place that I know you like, which is running on trails because a lot of triathletes, you know, especially at this time of year and with the you know seasons changing and having been on the treadmill, the track, or, you know, on the road a lot, this time of year, a lot of people tend to head off road. Um, and I know that's kind of like your, uh, your favorite playground. 
Um, so, so maybe give us a few pointers for people who are heading to the trails for the first time, or maybe a little bit apprehensive about, you know, where should, where should I run? What should I be doing? Should, is it okay to just completely switch tack and, and run trails? Like, um, yeah, what's your kind of, what's your, I'm interested in your uh, vantage point on this. Well, first, heck yeah. So proud of you for making yeah. that transition. Um, but also if we're thinking about a pure fitness framework, trails are freaking awesome. As long as you're doing the faster work and like doing them on non-technical trails when you do that specific stuff, everything else just improves all around performance capabilities. Um, and the first element there that I think is really important you mentioned is you said it was play like my playground. I think for everyone remembering the play element, trails are really yes. good yes. at yes. giving us that feedback, right? Because if you take yourself too seriously on trails, you get screwed over pretty darn quickly when you like eat yeah. crap. Um, whereas on roads and tracks in particular, it becomes a brutal game of self-judgment often. Um, and, and interlocked with that, the relationship with the watch absolutely changes. Um, yes. Time matters. So, so, so true. Yeah. Time matters, but don't like ever worry about pace. I mean, um, you know, I did a big race a couple of weeks ago where I averaged 10 minute pace. Um, mm-hmm. and was ex- extremely proud of it. Um, mm-hmm. and it's not to denigrate 10 minute pace. It's just like, not if I was worried about what the watch said at all, I don't even not, We encourage none of our athletes to have pace on their watch face whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, not just trail athletes, also road and track athletes, as weird as that sounds. Um, and then the second two things, otherwise it's basically trail running is road running. Just, uh, all the studies basically indicate that level ground running economy, uphill running economy and downhill running economy all correlate. There's just a couple mm-hmm. variations. Um, one is that there is on downhill more impact forces mm-hmm. and different biomechanical loading patterns. So you're going to get more eccentric muscle contractions. It can be a little weird at first. Um, trust your body. Understand that you're going to get a little sore the first time, few times you do it. Yes. Um, and be okay with that. And then on uphills, there's more mechanical work done at the joints and in some of the muscles. So mm-hmm muscular endurance becomes a slightly bigger factor, but otherwise all of the skills you have, particularly from biking will really apply, um, running obviously, and and your aerobic system really comes in handy, um, from swimming and other things. So I think triathletes are born trail runners. In fact, I'm coaching a triathlete right now. Um, I don't know if it's public, but very good, very, very, very elite triathlete who's coming over to trails and is Mm -hmm. like going to take over the world. Like as weird as that, (laughs) he's so good um at, at trail running and i'm like oh well that makes sense triathletes are freaking incredible athletes and yeah. uh, you know trail running really embrace awards athleticism um rather than like metronomic repetition and mm-hmm. so i think every triathlete has pretty much unlimited potential on trails and in ultras and things like that so you know if you're listening to this and you're on the fence make the leap give it a try it also feeds back into your mid-season training later on um yeah. in a way that I think can be super fun and really productive, even if your goal is just like qualifying for Kona in 10 years or something. Like it mm-hmm. feedback in better than doing the track sessions and all of that stuff in terms of how your physiology adapts long-term. Yeah, and I think uh, from a physical and mental standpoint, like training, uh, trail running, the for, for a triathlete, definitely like the strength gains that you, you know, the specific, run specific strength gains that you get from running uphill, um, and running and just running on trails that could be all kinds of varied terrain could be rocky, could be muddy, could be snowy, uh, could be, you know, whatever. Um, I think the physical gains that you get from that, um, are one thing, but I think 
for me personally, and I know a lot of triathletes like this, especially in the off season, like the mental change of pace and, and not just change of pace, pace, I mean, like the cha- change of environment and you're no longer on the track looking at splits and you're not, no longer got your head in the watch. You've got your, it's a completely different, um, yeah, just, just a completely different landscape in a, in a very literal and figurative sense, which I think, <laughs> which I think at this time of year is so important when you are looking to kind of refresh and reboot and reset a little bit before throwing yourself into another season. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a complete, you're, you're preaching to the converted because I'm definitely, yeah, I definitely love, I would always run on trails over, over road or, or anything else now. But, um, back in the day when I was triathlete, when I was training as a full-time triathlete, there's, I don't think I ever ran on trails unless I got lost somewhere. Well, I mean, I, I mean, one, you're a total freaking beast, but two, there's no bad way to do it. I would just say, make sure it's still fun. I, yeah. I, I know that's a weird thing to say when we're talking about like performance and stuff, but I think it's really easy to lose sight of it. Um, where we start to treat ourselves like we are means to an end, whether mm-hmm. that end is Kona qualifying or just getting fitter. Um, yeah. whereas like, the process is where life is lived. And I, so yes. I always want to like say if someone enjoys roads more great, but make sure you actually enjoy it. Um, this sport <laughs> or any sport has no inherent value um, in, in a, in a really good way, in a liberating way, in a way that applies to basically everything we do in life. Um, but I think sometimes we can get so far into it that we lose sight of the fact that like, Oh, we are just kind of monkeys farting around. Um, <laughs> yeah, trails. I think trails are the best for that because like, you know, event, you know, we all go through our cycles, but eventually you're just like, Oh yeah. Farting around. I'm, I'm right on. I am still a monkey. Yeah. Yeah, If if aliens came down to earth, they'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah. Or maybe they, maybe the aliens are runners. Maybe every, uh, civilization that achieves a certain level of, uh, hyper intelligence ends up being like, I need to run out these, this anxiety. <laughs> goes around, well, yeah, goes there's walk. definitely a lot of that. Yeah. But a, a random, random podcast tangent, there's always one every show, but uh, don't you think, I think the weirdest thing, not the weirdest, not the weirdest, but from a triathlete point of view, the weirdest thing that aliens would uh, swimming up and down in a 25 yard pool for like 90 minutes. If aliens just came down and looked at us, it'll be like, what are you doing? Why are you going up and down, and up and down, and up and down, at least with trails, like there would be a little bit more, you know, oh, they're going on an adventure. They're, they're, going to like find a, they're going to check out a new trail, but swimming up and down in 25 yard pool. Yeah. That's one. Every, every time you know, I do that most days. So, you know, I'm, I'm holding my hands up here, but, um, I think the, uh, the arrow position on the bike would be the one that really gets them. Like they'd be like, that's your decision. We understand your biomechanics <laughs> from all the probes we've done. We understand how your bodies are shaped. I don't know if that's normal. That's um, not. But that being said, I, you know, as a, as a non-swimmer, I imagine, I'm just guessing, that it is meditative. Much it is, yeah. That, you know, it, sure. you're, you're doing something extremely productive for your physiology, but then also you understand that, like, you, I imagine it's easier to achieve flow in swimming than it may be in other yes. things, perhaps. I, I don't for know. Sure. No, you're this right. Is, it definitely uh, is. And I and I am completely an advocate of that. But um, and, and the pool is my place where I go to switch off and have that like almost metronome effect, you know, like yeah. a, you can zone out. I think it's something to do with that. You can get in with your breath much quick, much easier than anything else. Or I don't know. But um, yeah, that, so that was quite a random tangent. We've covered aliens and we've covered breathing. We've covered 25 yard pools. So uh, don't forget probes. <laughs> Oh, I like it. Um, injuries. 
Yeah. Womp womp. Nobody <laughs> likes injuries. Um, but they're a part of, they are definitely part of running. And as triathletes, uh, I think most triathletes would say, would agree that of the three sports, running is the one that often leads them to the injury chair. Uh, how do you help your runners and how do you help your athletes stay injury free? What's that look like? So I learned over time to frame it in a different way because I think one injury is not sexy. Um, and uh-uh. I've learned that from like what I've seen of like page views and things and podcast listens. <laughs> um, you know, you talk about injury and it's like every, anything else that we talk about. It's because like on our, po- on our podcast, we're like extremely open about everything. And it's like, people are all in. It's not about like athletics at all most of the time. But injuries, one place where people will skip. Um, and yeah. I think that, that applies because, you know, one, we all just think it's a little bit inevitable. Um, and two, it's kind of a bummer. Um, but I think injuries are extremely important to think about in the context of adaptation. So mm-hmm. essentially what an injury is, is a failure in adaptation for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And that is not just bad if it leads to injury. Sometimes it leads to injury. Often it doesn't. It just leads to stagnation or regression that we're not even seeing in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so injury and adaptation are parts of the same spectrum. If you fall away on the injury side, that sucks. Um, but if you're also kind of in the middle and not adapting, that also sucks. And uh, that way, you know, that's why when we're talking about to our athletes, we are focused constantly on how can we improve adaptation rates. Um, and so there's a few things we focus on, and this also applies obviously to injuries. The first is a basic strength work. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're curious online, um, we on Trailrunner Mag we have the eight minute speed legs routine. We also have a weekly template of strength work that involves bands and things like that. Essentially, all this stuff that we do involves at most ten minutes a week spread out. Um, oh, wow. Okay. For mobility work. Um, that's all it really takes in our experience. And we have incredible amounts of data at this point. Um, mm-hmm. Keeping that consistent rather than like we have found that heavy lifting, great if a person works with the strength coach year round, terrible if they're on and off with it. Um, mm-hmm. Because every time you go through that inflammation cycle, you're increasing injury risk. And yep. so understand your goals. You're not necessarily, you don't necessarily have to be Christian Blumenfeld or whoever might be doing incredible amounts of strength work. I'm not exactly sure what his training program is um, because he's doing it in such a single-minded focus, 35 hour in a week way that Mm -hmm. it totally plays into his physiology. Um, A few minutes a day, very simple activities. um, People could look those up. Two is nutrition and approach that like we're all about eat enough food, always do not restrict fuel your training, especially Mm -hmm. in the, in the moment. I mean, the studies on particularly endocrine system and nervous system impacts Mm -hmm. of under fueling longer training sessions yeah, pretty darn terrible. And yeah. I'm not sure how much like low carb, high fat has made its way into the tri world. I assume a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's here. Yeah. yeah. And that there are some men that may have some success with that. Yes. They are yes. most likely physiological hours. There are probably zero women um, yes. that will be reaching their potential doing that. And it's really important to understand because even the women aren't reaching their potential because the way the hormone system works is obviously very different. Also, um, you know, women are often pretty much optimizing some of their fat oxidation just naturally due to the role of estrogen and things. Um, whereas, you know, men have testosterone as kind of a buffer, but also have the sex hormone impacts and also have the cortisol impacts. Um, yes. It's just a question of whether those impacts can be weathered. And yes. so a lot of the people that have success end up being freaks of nature that happen to be really great at adapting to this stuff. Um, whereas like, so yeah, if you've had a low testosterone reading as a male athlete, consider how you're feeling or training. Um, and then mm-hmm. overall, like making sure you're eating enough and 
plenty of protein and all that good stuff. And then just focusing on overall life stress. So mm-hmm. the body doesn't know miles. It doesn't know weekly volume. It doesn't know any of that stuff. At the cellular level, it is meaningless to a cell. Uh, all the cell knows is stress signals, the chemical context of those. And so training is introducing a very helpful chemical context that can be overwhelmed by the same chemical context coming from life. Uh, here mm-hmm. we're also talking about stress hormones, but also uh, just even good hormonal stimuli and good nervous system stimuli. Um, and so making sure you actually feel good in training. If you mm-hmm. feel bad all the time, if you are tired, your body is going to be undershooting adaptation. Uh, the problem for try in particular, um, but also ultra running, also road marathoning, even track running, is that the champions are genetically predisposed to be able to manage stress levels. Like that is why they are champions. They would not mm-hmm. be that way. You know, it might not be their VO2 max. They might just be a freak of nature when it comes to the way cortisol interacts with their physiology or whatever. It is. Right. Yeah. And so understanding that your specific context can be totally different and you can still reach that very, very top level for yourself and for the world. Um, mm-hmm. Example I always love is there's an athlete we coach. So UTMB, one of the biggest ultras in the world, probably may, might be the most competitive, um, off of 45 miles a week in no cross training, finished third at UTMB. Um, whereas all of his competitors- 45 miles a week? Yeah. And Holy cow. Sorry, you made my voice go really high then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just the way stress interacts with his particular physiology, also an outlier physiology, is different. And mm-hmm. all of us are working within that same context. And so being hyper aware that the goal- it, it, it's good to feel good in running in life. Um, mm. actually, in podcast, we did a science corner episode that was on this exact, all the studies in physiology of why that is. My wife's a doctor. So she's the real, the actually one that knows all this stuff. And, um, you know, it's what we've seen most over time because you can pound yourself into two months of adaptation, but over two years, um, it's so key to give your body the healthy context to mm-hmm. improve in a way that isn't just sustainable, is actually achievable at all. Right. Yeah. So I'm I'm fascinated now with your with your guy that did the UTM did UTMB off of 45 miles a week. How did you so to, to back that up, how did you find out in the first place that like a lower mileage like that would would yield that kind of end result? You know, like I mean, was it just, or is it just somebody that has a lot of life life stress outside of training? Well, I, I like would say that I'm a freaking prophet over here and knew it was going to happen. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you're going to have everybody knocking on your door. Well, (laughs) yeah, you'd be surprised. (laughs) Which, obviously, I think think coaches are given too much credit in all of this world. Like, it's individual athletes, their toughness, their belief, their genetics often. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy is a total freaking monster. Um, Emotionally, mentally, but he's also a great person. You know what I mean? Like, I think a random number generator could coach most people. Um, as long as they are a loving random number generator. Um, yes. Of course, that was me. That was my imposter syndrome talking for. <laughs> um, but no, we use a couple, we use a, a specific metric called fatigue resistance that we've, mm-hmm. it's like we've created. It, it's a mix of a, a few different things. Essentially, it's how athlete uh, performance outputs deteriorate after longer sessions when they then go to yeah. threshold or above. Um, mm-hmm. And we have a specific way we calculate it that's not that important, but he tested relatively off the charts um, within uh, the first few months. And okay. once an athlete does that, we don't push training too hard at all because they're already at the place they need to be. And mm-hmm. we make sure that that number is improving before we do that. So combining that with life stress for him, like 
put him in a place where, you know, he was able to do that. Who's to say though, that maybe if he did 145 miles a week, he would have won. Um, mm. you know, it's just, it, it, that's the hard part about training theory. It's always, you can't prove a negative and we're all equal, N equals one, but you add up enough of those. And I think, uh, sometimes the, the stories that are so elevated for like em- demonstrating hard work ethic are actually demonstrating, um, genetic anomalies. And, mm-hmm. um, I'm much more curious in where the middle of the bell curve lies, because I think that that's much more applicable even to the most pros, um, let alone most beginners or anything like that. Yeah, this is fascinating. I could I could talk about this all day, but uh, yeah. Um, so last question then uh, before we uh, before we bid you farewell. But uh, you already mentioned your desert your uh, your favorite your go to run workout your desert island run workout. Um, what would or maybe a run workout for this time of year, or or maybe it's just your all around all time favorite run workout? But um, let's sign off with uh, your your go to your go to run sesh. Perfect. Um, so two or three miles, easy warm up. Um, working into it, it's okay to go slow. Focus on all those things we talked about. Then six by two minute hills, moderately hard. Thinking mm-hmm. like you're running a five k, but not digging down too deep in the heart rate or any specifics of the output itself, running back down for recovery and then mm-hmm. capping it off with four by 45 second hills hard where you're not oh. sprinting, but you're putting out a good amount of power, really stressing your cardiac system and finishing mm-hmm. that with two or three miles, easy cool down for pro athletes. Um, there might be tempo running all tacked on top of that for some aerobic benefits. There might be a few more intervals tacked on um, if we need a ton of stress for them to adapt for whatever reason, if they if they measure on, on some of these metrics in a different place. Um, but for most people, that will be the ultimate power at VO2 max uh, session where you're working on how much output can actually come from those you know muscles at the joints um, over the course of you know the the aerobic, but as hard as it gets aerobically. Um, output levels. And then the running down recovery gives you time to fully um, recover for the next one. So we're not working on just practicing fatigue. We're working on actually putting out the power. And then you throw the hills on. And as simple as that session sounds, you'll be running through sludge. You'll be very excited when it's over. um, And there's a really good chance that just a few days later, you find that I have a little bit more snap. And Hmm. it all gets back to how the neuromuscular system works, that once you're able to push that limit, and this workout truly does start to push that limit, as weird as it sounds, um, the limit gets pushed back just slightly. And doing it on hills reduces injury risk and I think really optimizes the amount of power an athlete can put out in a session without fading. Um, Hmm. And that's where really cool things can happen. Man, really cool things happen. Well, I like it. I like it. David, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. I have thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. And I know this is going to be of uh, great insight and interest to our uh, listeners. So thank you for your expertise and insight. And uh, I think we'll be coming back to you in the future on Triathlete for uh, tapping up your running brains. More, so. <laughs> well, so, I'm yes. always here. And uh, for any listener out there, uh, you know, I talked a lot about training, but I just want to know you're enough and you are loved no matter what you do with training, no matter what you do with life. Um, always just want to make sure that message is loud and clear that, um, you are so amazing just the way you are. And in this process of striving for self-improvement, uh, that still means that every single day along the way, you're freaking perfect. Oh, that's beautiful. That's a, a lovely sign off. Thank you. <laughs> Woo-hoo, thank you so much. Cheers, David. Bye. Bye. 
the Velocity Cycling app knows that all of your training inside is to be better outside. Becoming faster is a skill you can and should be training during your indoor sessions by focusing on key contributors to speed like body position, effective power transfer, gearing efficiency, and drag reduction. With Velocity, better starts inside so you can get to fast, faster. Next up, we're joined by Chris Foster, our executive editor and resident gear guru, who's going to talk us through some of the biggest trends we've seen in the running world over the last few years and the impact this has had on gear and gadgets. Here's our chat with Chris. Chris Foster, the gear guru, is in the house. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good, EK. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. We had first snow in Boulder last night, so I'm all wrapped up in my woolies. Oh my gosh. We got under 70 degrees here in LA, so I'm sitting next to a heater. <sighs> That's how, that's how hard it is here. You Californians, <laughs> oh, stop talking to me. <laughs> well, no, actually, we're, we're, we're going to do quite the opposite, of course, because yeah. we've got you here to talk run gear. And uh, I know you normally wow us every, every month on Fitter and Faster with all your gear and gadget knowledge. But I think with the run special here, you might just outdo yourself. No, no pressure. I mean, yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I didn't have anything <laughs> planned. I was just going to talk about like going outside and stuff. Yeah, right. that's all I got. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, running is definitely uh, nearest and dearest to my heart. It's probably the thing I right. do the most right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, I have a background in running too. Um, but yeah, there's a lot going on in running with running gear, which kind of makes it exciting because there is a lot to talk about and it's not as, you know, like straightforward as I think everyone would have you believe. Right. Um, so yeah, no, there's, there's a lot to cover, but I'll try to be brief. Yeah, no, don't be brief. You know, uh, we don't want you to, to skimp and save, but, uh, <laughs> I think when it comes to, when it comes to gear for triathlon, obviously it's very easy to, uh, think all about the bike and all about all the carbon fiber goodness and magic that comes with cycling and, and a lot of people are often like, oh, I can just toss a pair of run shoes in my bag and I'm good to go. Um, but when it comes to run shoes, have you, as you've, uh, you know, as you just mentioned, like there is, there's obviously been a lot of big changes in uh, run shoe technology uh, over the last few years. And um, obviously, like when it comes to like the maximalist shoes, I know that's something you've, uh, you've got a lot of opinions about. So uh, maybe we start there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people love to talk about the bike stuff, but I think that's just because it's, you know, it's sleek and it's expensive. And, but, you know, a lot of the bike stuff isn't going to get you injured if you have the wrong right. one. I mean, if your right. fit's off, obviously, but, yeah. you know, you get the wrong pair of wheels, it's not going to injure you. Um, but with running, you know, it, it can cause injury pretty quickly, especially with the shoes. Um, so, yeah, the maximalist shoes are like the big thing over the past, you know, five, 10 years, um, kind of starting with like Hoka's Bondi. That was kind of like the, the big catalyst, I think. Um, yeah. And there were other, other brands that did it too, but I think it really blew up with Hoka. Um, and I think even Hoka will admit to this, a lot of that had to do with triathletes. Right. Like, you know, yeah. Hoka was made by triathletes. Like oh, they, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And they've hit it big, you know, in the in the general running community. Yeah. I know in the ultra world, they're huge. Um, but, you know, triathletes are often willing to try stuff first. And, yes. We are the early adopters. Yeah. And quite honestly, like they're willing to look a little bit dorky while they do it. So I think the well, big, yeah. the big mean, stack Hoka's like, we're just like, yeah, whatever. They look like orthopedic shoes. Don't care. They feel do good. You when they first came out like that how funny they looked they used to make me chuckle all the time oh, yeah. i was like wow why are people just wearing like, moon boots yeah now everyone's got it. and in fact i mean we'll talk about this in a minute but um you know it's almost like 
it's almost like a, a signal, you know, like, oh, you know, you're a triathlete or you're serious about running. You've got a high stack shoe or like we'll get into in a minute, you know, carbon sold shoes. It's kind of like a marker. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, after Hoka kind of took off, um, other brands hopped in line. Um, you know, you see it in every brand has their, their squishy, uh, model, mm-hmm. um, and they're good shoes. And I think there's two kind of big reasons that they're good. The first is kind of obvious and the second is less. So, um, you know, obviously more cushion takes the impact off your knees and your joints, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I mean, for older runners, for, um, people who've been running a long time for triathletes who are doing a lot of training, they're coming off the bike, their legs are already fatigued. Um, this is just, you know, one of those basic things like you can feel it in the shoe store. You put them mm-hmm. on, you run around, they squish, they feel nice. Um, you know, especially if you're a, you know, heel striker, for instance. Right. Um, but the second is kind of less obvious, um, a little less intuitive. It's, it's that this increased cushioning and there, and I think this was kind of more of an accident. I think this kind of came after the fact, mm-hmm. um, this increased cushioning kind of allows your foot and your gait to do more of what it already does. Right. Um, and, and, uh, I think that's kind of goes against what we were looking at in like the nineties and the early two thousands, like the old school way of, well, not old, old school, but like mid school, um, was like, if you're, if your foot rolls inward, we need to fix it. If it mm-hmm. rolls outward, we need to not necessarily fix it, but give it a little more room to move. Mm-hmm. Um, like any alteration in gait from neutral is a problem. Yeah, we have to take care of that by correcting. It's almost like the the Victorian style of running gate, you know, <laughs> correction, like, like putting your foot in a corset type exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly. It must be corrected. That was a horrible <laughs> British accent. Sorry, um, <laughs> but but that was the thing. You know, it's like there's a problem, and, and it, you know, to some extent, it it worked. Um, yeah. and it was an easy thing, I think, for people to do in a shoe store. You know, you, you do the, the shoe dog thing at Roadrunner Sports, you run on the treadmill or yeah. you know, someone watches you walk and, and, you know, you're like, okay, well, these are custom for me. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But now they're saying, let your foot, let your gait do what it wants to do unless there's a problem, unless yes. it's causing injury. Yeah. So they're not just saying it's a free for all. Like I think what we were seeing a little bit with the minimalist stuff before, where mm-hmm. it's just like, we're humans. We're supposed to run without shoes on, you know, let the foot just go wild. And if you get injured, that's your. Yeah. Problem. More like wh- when you get injured. Right. If. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because we, you know, I mean, as, as much as, you know, there are people who ran barefoot for, you know, generations and stuff like that, that ain't us anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't grow up running barefoot and I'm sure you probably didn't either. I mean, nope. Yeah. So we grow up with shoes on and, you know, for better, or for worse, you know, you could say it's a bad thing, but here we are. So anyway, um, now they're saying, you know, let the foot roam a little bit more. And I think the, mm-hmm. the higher cushion shoes, the maximalist shoes are allowing your foot to do that without, you know, that minimalist, like without, without any structure at all. Like, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's kind of like the secondary thing that we're seeing with the maximalist shoes. We're seeing less injuries and people are thinking, oh, I'm not getting injured because it's squishy and it's taking you know, impact off my joints and my bones and stuff. It is to some extent. Yeah. Um, But it's also letting your foot do do what it wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's working with your natural gait. Um, And, you know, again, that doesn't work for everyone. Um, There are times when you need to have corrections, but, um, but I think that's kind of an interesting thing we're seeing with these maximalist shoes. It's having this weird, almost unintended effect 
um, that, that is decreasing injury. Um, yeah, it's, that's very interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that second point there before. Yeah. But, um, but then there are some downsides to these shoes too. Yeah, I mean, nothing's perfect. Um, right. You know, first, there is less structure. Um, you know, and that's kind of the point. It's just like we're taking away these, you know, these, mo- you know, think back to the most structured shoes. I think of like a New Balance, like 1000 mm-hmm. series with like that big plastic, you know, insert on the inside. And, and yeah. that's providing that motion control. Um, but if you have none of that, um, you're getting this compression all the time, just pure mm-hmm. compression into the foam um, that can make the shoe change over time, probably quicker than it would normally mm. um, because it is so plush um, and you're, you're not bottoming it out, but, but you can get to that faster. So if you do have an imbalance, it can almost get exaggerated quicker than it would without you know, a plush pair yep. of shoes. Yep. Um, and, and so in that sense, you know, sometimes you need to replace them faster than you'd hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, you don't know you need to replace them because it's not like that old outsole test where, you know, it's worn away and you're like, oh, it's time to get new shoes. Like mm-hmm. by the time that outsole is worn away, you probably need new shoes for weeks. Oh, and just as an interesting aside there, how often do you change out your shoes? How many miles? Oh, man. Me, see, it's hard because I get so many shoes. Yeah. I'm like the worst about it. I okay, have assuming like, that you didn't have a Gear Guru's run closet. Assuming um, that you, if you were just regular Chris, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i sorry to do that to you, but <laughs> if, I, if I stripped you of your superpowers and you were regular Chris who had to buy, <gasps> buy your own oh, shoes, oh, sorry, gosh, no. swearing at you here. Um, <laughs> if you had to buy your own shoes, how often would you be switching them out? Ah, oh, boy, it's been a while since I did that, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> been a while slash brag. never. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, I mean, a couple hundred miles. And right. I, oh, and okay, that's, that, that frequently. Okay. Yeah, and I, okay. and I was always on the... That's way more cautious than most people. Right. I mean, more people are mostly three, you know, yeah. 400. Um, yeah. I like 200 because I'm just like, look, you know, physical therapy costs way more than new shoes. Right. I don't want to be off the roads. Um, typically, by the time I feel I need new shoes... It's probably I probably need new shoes for a while, and that goes mm-hmm. for most people. Um, yeah. I mean, I like to say I go by feel, but um, but if you're go, going by feel, unfortunately, like you get into the red zone, mm-hmm. you know, by the time you feel something starting to bother yeah. you, um, or the outsole, or the outsole is worn away, or you know, mm-hmm. I mean, some people, you know, they're heavier, outsole's going to wear away faster. They scuff yeah. their feet; they just have yeah. a funny gait. Outsole's yeah. going to wear away faster, um, yeah. and then some people have perfect form, but they're still impacting the shoe a lot. Yeah, and if they're a lighter weight shoe or just, you know, like some of the speed shoes that I've worn recently, like I've been like, whoa, I would not wear these for 150 miles. You know? Oh, like, no. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. And, yeah. and and people go through different stages in life too. And, you know, you get older and you need a different thing. So it's really one of those things you just have to kind of like see for yourself. And, um, and yeah, I, I was I just always, interested in what your number was. Yeah, yeah, I aired yeah. so much on the side of caution um, yeah. because I just, you know, I like running a lot and I don't want to not be able to do it. So yeah, and with um, I think with tra- and with training platforms or apps like Strava now, where you can log the number, mm-hmm. you can obviously register which shoe you w- did for each run, and it will pop up and give you a notification. Yeah, you know, the other day That's I got amazing. a notification that oh, you've run three hundred and fifty miles in these shoes, and it's yeah. like oh, okay, cool. I would not have been, I wouldn't have realized I'd run that many miles in those shoes. So yeah, yeah, cool. I think that's such a cool way to. It's a good jumping off point. Like mm-hmm. you almost want that warning not when it's time to get new shoes, but when it's time to start thinking about it. Yeah. Um, because what it doesn't take into account for, I don't think is like, you know, elevation, uh, yeah. you know, in the runs. So like if you're doing a ton of downhill, uphill and downhill running, putting a lot more right. pressure on those shoes or, yeah. you know, if you're plodding along for longer, slower runs, 
that can mm-hmm. put more impact on the shoe. So it's, you know, it's a good guide. And I think that's better yeah. than the old school. Like, I mean, I, I used to write, you know, on a Sharpie, uh, with a Sharpie on the, the side of my shoe when I bought it. And then, Oh, did you? Nice. Oh yeah. And then you're like, well, three months after that. And that was like, so, you know, unscientific. Cause you didn't, I didn't put the miles or anything. I've always right. been terrible at logging miles, but that's what we did in high school cross country. You put the date, you bought them on the side nice. of your shoe. Oh, I like then, that. Yeah. That's um, super old school. Yeah. Super old school. It probably didn't work that well, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, the, the maximalist shoes, they, they have the tendency to wear out and, and not yeah. just because, um, there's less structure, um, but you're kind of finding this weird thing, like, um, because companies are adding this additional material, yeah. you know, this extra foam, it's literally more material going into these yeah. shoes. Um, they're caught in this, like this kind of funny side arms race almost like, like a shoe company, they say they don't care about weight and people say they don't care about weight, but it matters. Like it does. Like when you see some of those big beefy shoes and you see some of their weights, like when we were, when I was writing the, the full, uh, run shoe guide, yeah. And, you know, looking at the weights to put into, to include in that. And like some of those, when they start getting beefy, beefy, you know, like when yeah. you're hitting the nine, nine ounce, nine plus, you know, oh, even um, more. I guess for yeah, women, 10, yeah. Yeah, like 10 ounce, guys, whatever. It's like 12, 13, you're like, you start to think like, hmm. You can see really why they would that. want, you can yeah. definitely see why they would want to, uh, yeah, like, like you're saying here, like take some material away somewhere else, skimp somewhere else because, yeah. Because exactly. people do pay attention to that. Yeah. I mean, we list I, it I think, for a reason. You know, yeah, right. we list yeah. it because readers want to know. And, and yeah. you know, it's probably one of those things we could argue is not as important as we like to think it is. Right. Um, you know, like an ounce here, an ounce there. I don't know, whatever. But um, especially if we're not talking about racing shoes. You know, yeah. we're talking about trainers. I'm, yeah. My big thing when I was running in um, high school and college is I would actually find the heaviest shoe, the most structured. Oh, like I yeah. wore... Nike, for training. Yeah, Nike yeah. Air Structures. And I didn't need structured shoe, but I just found this big, fat, heavy shoe and I mean, I don't know if it was a good idea or not, but I was thinking, you know, if I train in these yeah. and, you know, I cut down to my spikes, mm-hmm. I'll be blazing. So that's like the run equivalent of wearing uh, drag pants in the pool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or putting, or putting a ton of stuff on your winter bike. Yeah. 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 And then you like strip it all off. Or, spring, yeah. co- spring comes and you strip it all off and you're like, woohoo, here yeah. I am. Shaking yeah. up the snow. Yeah. Yeah. So I always did that. Um, but anyway, so people do pay attention to the weight. Um, yeah. And, and so what you're seeing with the shoe companies is, you know, in the back of their mind, they're saying, I don't want to be that 13 ounce shoe that's yeah. just going to get cast, you know, especially if, you know, you've got a big chart like we do all the time with all the shoes yeah. and all the weights. Yeah. Oh, no, 13 ounce, like they're way at the end, you know, mm-hmm. you, just like anything, you start with the lightest and then go down. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're seeing is a lot of these brands skimping on the outsole. Mm. Uh, because the outsole is so heavy because it's a, a you know, higher density rubber, um, and there are places where you can kind of cut away or, you know, a lot of the hokas will just have some, some outsole on the front, some on the rear, nothing in the middle. Um, and then again, you know, that kind of boils down to durability. So mm. if you are someone who wears away an outsole quickly and now you're just running on basic midsole foam, you know, I mean, whether those shoes are, are done in the traditional sense, like, oh, they're compressed too much they're going to start causing an injury, you know, you're slipping around, you're, you know, you're just impacting directly the midsole. So it's not, you know, it's not what it was made for. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of that. It's very interesting. Um, yeah. and, and again, kind of a weird side effect. It's like everyone right. wants another, more material, 
but they don't want to give up their weight. So yes, yeah. where do we go? Almost um, like another unintended consequence of this yeah. maximalist trend. Yeah. 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 And the other, there is one other good kind of point to the, you know, the added weight thing is they're also finding ways to innovate um, with other parts of the shoe. So mm-hmm. you're also seeing um, very cool uh, uppers now. Mm. I think you're seeing just super, like you're seeing almost like what used to be on a race flat, that kind of like really lightweight, thin material. Um, you're seeing that put onto just a regular everyday trainer. Yeah. Um, you know, they have the, the, what is it like 3d woven is everything, yeah. you know, fewer stitches, all that stuff, which is awesome for saving weight. Awesome for triathletes because that kind of upper is best for sockless running. You know, yes. if that's something that you're interested in. You want those seams gone and seams, you know, seams add complexity to the, the manufacturing process. They add weight, you know, the glue adds weight. Um, so if you're 3d stitching that, or you're using some other kind of lightweight material that you can use a, a thinner thread with, um, I think that's like win, win, win for triathletes. Yeah. And I, I would, uh, to reference again, the full shoe guide that we did, I was surprised at how many of those shoes had were like that in terms of the uppers you know you, you literally put yeah. them on you're like oh wow these feel kind of like slippers yeah. almost even yeah. though they're kind of chunky some of them are chunky trainers like right. not what I, you've always got like a race a race flat upper feel yes. with a, a chunky sort of like a heavy heavily supported sole so exactly and then it's such um, a it's such a weird thing to come out of this but um but the good thing is you know that's one of those things that only goes in one direction you know if yeah. we ever decide that maximalist is garbage and we go back to you know just like a mid cush shoe that upper is going to stay because yeah. they're not going to change their manufacturing back. Yeah. Um, hopefully they add more outsole. I would love to see that, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think it's, it's definitely a net positive. Um, I think, you know, there's the, the only other downside I'm seeing a little bit with the maximalist shoes and, and we'll talk about this in a second is um, the plushness of the shoe can sometimes lose a little bit of that energy return. Um, yeah. So you're just, you know, it's like running on a pillow. Yep. Yeah, a little too soft and cushy, and yeah. Yeah, but but yeah. we've also seen that, like in the last three years, most companies have kind of fixed that. Unless yeah. you know, there there are models that are like that, but I think they they do a pretty good job of explicitly like identifying, you know, this is a, a shoe that's pure plush, pure cushion, not yeah. your tempo, not your race day, yep. um, that kind of thing. So that's that's just something to consider if you're thinking, oh, is are maximalist shoes for me? Just make sure you don't go full maximalist and expect to like, you know, crush your Strava KOMs and stuff like that. Right. So maximalist is one one end of the spectrum and the other end, maybe not not the direct other end, but there's also obviously the other trend that I know you're dying to talk about, which is oh, yeah. the carbon sold super shoe. Yeah. The which we could talk about forever. So, I know, we uh, could do a whole podcast on that. Um, <laughs> I'll try to keep it brief, but... But, you know, I think, I think it's, it's actually a nice transition because, uh, like I was saying, that downside of that really plushy, foamy shoe is the fact that you don't get much energy return. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, inserting that carbon plate kind of counteracts some of that. And we've seen a yeah. little bit of that. Um, you know, the whole carbon sold super shoe thing began like in earnest recently um, with the Nike Vaporfly 4%. I mean, yeah. that, you know, in the past three years, four years. Um, those just took off. And I mean, the funny thing is like carbon has been used in running shoes as far back as like the mid nineties. Like I think Reebok used to have something, um, even like, this is really funny, even Zoot, like when they first started 
running shoes because they were just wetsuits and stuff before. Yeah. Um, back in the, the like the late 2000s, they had a carbon plated shoe called the Ultra Race. Oh, and you, I know you're probably like I don't remember. I do, that. I do remember. I do remember some of the, those zoot shoes because they were like they were super dry specific, weren't yeah. they? Like you could you could I, I always wore those with like I never wore socks with those. Right. Like you could yeah they a were lot very of them came much with like, the the elastic laces already and and um, I want to say that I want to say there was a pair that had like a heel the heel that you could pull I'm trying oh. to I'm doing this and realizing we're on audio and we're not on video but like the heel that you could pull back and push in I know what you're talking about I think Scott did that oh so that was Scott you're Scott. right sorry yeah. yeah 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 I could that would have been something Zoot would have done for sure but um man oh was, man we like, should we should resurrect some of these and do like a little funny history oof. series of all like the weird I wonder if we could find them yeah I do remember those yeah like, those was, were yeah. wild I remember kind of being like saving you half a second but you're uncomfortable then, for the rest of the right <laughs> yeah i don't i've never worn them i just remember no, seeing them i remember thinking. seeing them too it was yeah. a cool idea but like i don't know yeah but anyway um, yeah. yeah sorry i'm taking you off on all no, the tangents no. around all places it. today Going down memory road on scott rear entry <laughs> shoes um but yeah so like you know, Zoot yeah, had a, a carbon plated shoe back in the day and um, right. i think it was one of those things that you know, Zoot was really only for triathletes and I don't think yeah. anyone really knew what to make of it. And, yeah. um, and quite honestly, I think some of that stuff wasn't really ready. Um, yeah. because carbon plating, you know, it's, it's not like crazy high tech. Um, no. but you know, it's also not crazy comfortable if you just have the carbon plate. So yeah. I think in the last few years we've seen, okay, we saw the plushiness kind of taking off the maximalist shoe. And then I think Nike said, okay, well, that's cool. People like that. And we've got this carbon plate thing that is kind of rough for a lot of people or it's too springy or, you know, doesn't activate well or whatever. Um, and they're like, all right, well, let's jam those things together. Mm -hmm. Um, and we'll solve the plushiness that just lets you sink in like a pillow and we'll solve, yeah. you know, potentially the harsh ride or the, the spring, like over springiness of a carbon yeah. shoe, yeah. Um, you know, it maybe breaks down too quickly or something like that. Um, so yeah, we saw the, the Vaporfly 4% and, you know, Kipchoge lowered the marathon world record in 2018 with a pair of those. I think before that, like I'm trying to say like the Adi zero or no, the Adios was like the big marathon shoe. And then after that, it's like, nope, Vaporfly, you know, or bust. Yeah, um, they really did start something, didn't they? Oh my gosh. Like and and, it, and it's funny, like I was saying before, it's almost like a signaling thing. Like you can see the vapor plies from a mile away. Like yeah. you know, they're they're obvious, they're high, they're weird, they're kind of, you know, yeah. bulbous, like and Nike's really leaned into that. I think it's almost yeah. like they took a they're like, whoa, that's an ugly shoe. Let's just lean into how Let's crazy. Let's just go it with this. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, whatever, people aren't gonna wear it to work. You know, it's not, it's not a shoe for that. Like nobody wears them around. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that kind of took off. And I mean, I know when we did the shoe count back in 2018, um, in 2017, Nike had 5% of the field, which was like. In Kona, like, this is. Yeah, in Kona. I'm sorry, yeah. in Kona. Yeah. Um, you know, 5% is like most shoe brands. Yeah. 2018, after the Kipchoge thing, 15%. Yeah. You know, that's a huge jump. They were right on the heels of Hoka. And Hoka has traditionally been number one just mm -hmm. for, for reference um so they just they obviously took off you know they they give you that kind of energy return if you don't know what they are a big energy return um but enough cushioning with the the foam that they use to 
you know, to make it something you could run a marathon on and not just some kind of springy little 5k or, you know, whatever mile shoe. Um, but you know, they're not necessarily for everybody. Um, you know, some, some of the carbon is too springy for people. It just doesn't work with their rhythm, their cadence, yeah. their gait. I know, yeah. I know a handful of pro triathletes who just won't wear them. I mean, I know that there are t- most in, in most races now you see everybody in the pro field wearing them, but yeah. or, almost everybody. Um, but I know there are people who would just outright say, no, I can't run in them. Yeah. They, they just still feel weird. I don't like the road feel with them. Or I don't like the ground feel with them. Right. Like they're, they're not for me. They're not for my gait. They're not for my, yeah. Or for your speed. I mean, well, right. not, not so much in the pro field, but, you know, I mean, if you're running a five-hour marathon, like, it's not the same, you know, it's not going to give you the same feedback as it gives Kipchoge when he's done in two hours. Like, right. it's just, yeah. it's not the right, it's not the right shoe for everyone. So, yeah. so that's something, you know, it's not going to magically, and this is another thing I think people sometimes forget. They think the 4% says it'll make me 4% faster. And even yep. Nike's like, that's not the case. They right. will make you 4% more efficient. Efficient, yeah, which doesn't necessarily equate to 4% faster. Right, right. It just means like, okay, your you're, you're running gait's a little bit better. You're getting a little bit, not even more propulsion, but you're taking less fatigue. Like that's, yes. that's kind of like the phrase, taking less fatigue, which doesn't sound as sexy as 4% faster. Faster, you yeah. Know, you, you still have to run faster. Right. <laughs> like right, they're right, not right. going to make you faster, you know, but maybe you're, you know, you need less calories, you're you know, you're able to push further, harder, longer, you know, without yeah. the consequences, you know, the, the mechanical breakdown that you get once you start to fatigue, um, and all that stuff. So, you know, that, that I think is a really important distinction that a lot of people kind of skimp over, yeah. um, both the fact that it's not for everyone and the fact that it's not in any way free speed. Like, you yeah. know, that, that is, we are not talking about like, you know, like, uh, a more aerodynamic bike. That's just free speed. Like you are now a mile an hour faster just with the same effort. Like that's not how it goes. Um, So I think that's important to talk about. Um, I think, you know, obviously the price. Gee, they are not, they are not cheap. Yeah. No. I mean, they're not cheap. To start. It was like like 250. Yeah. Yeah. To get into into any carbon plated shoe, it's 200. Yeah. And, and this is also, I think part of the reason it didn't take off back in the nineties and the two thousands um, was because everyone back then was like, you know, you go to the running shoe store and you buy a $120 pair of shoes. You're like, wow, these better be the best freaking shoes ever. Like right. I remember spending 120 and being like, this is crazy. Like I'm, these are deluxe shoes. Um, <laughs> most people were spending a hundred, you know, or, or 90, 90 to a hundred. And I think it's just expensive to make these shoes. Um, yes, of course. Yeah. So now people, well, feel if you like, think the R and D alone that Nike must've put into this. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, the material, you know, it's just like, it's a lot. So, yeah. um, and you know, they can wear out faster. They're race day only typically. So it's, you know, it's kind of a luxury thing. Um, but people feel more comfortable spending 200, $250 on shoes, yeah. I think now than they used yeah. to. And so, there's obviously quite a big difference between you could have you know several different you know, several pairs of carbon shoes and they all run and race differently right obviously no totally. pair is the same totally. um and so and i'd be so bold to say that you've probably run in one of them or most you know, of them I've, so, i haven't run as many carbon sold shoes as i have with um, the trainers because oh, um, okay. they are just hard to get a hold of even for yeah. uh reviewers it's yeah it's tough and um yeah and it's also the kind yeah. of thing you know if i do a, if i do a race you know i don't race every week so it's hard to you know, really put them through the paces. 
Yeah, um, but any favorites that you've, any favorite that you've worn, tested, liked? Yeah, so if we're just talking about the carbon-plated shoes, um, I like the Asics MetaRacer. Mm, um, yep. They are, like, they're not super high stack, um, but they do have a pretty big rocker compared yeah. to some of the other ones. Um, their traction is garbage. I would never wear it on a rainy day. It's like, I think it has as much traction as like your thumbprint. <laughs> it literally is what it looks like on the bottom. You're just like, oh, they forgot to put an outsole on it. Like it looks like an unfinished shoe. Um, but for me and my like my running stride, my gait, my cadence, um, it really hits the sweet spot. So mm -hmm. I, and that's after trying a few different pairs. Um, but I would only race in those. Like right. only, only. Um, for like, I want to say that Flora Duffy won the Olympics in those. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Have you tried a bunch of them? Some of them. Oh, one of those pairs that I wore in the ocean when we went swim running. Oh, yeah. uh, those, those new, definitely don't try this at home, kids. Uh, but those New Balance, they, they were probably my favorite pair from the summer of, oh, yeah. of uh, um, the Fuel Cell. Yeah, yeah. Elites. They those were because I found I find some of them too rockery, like too yeah. mu too much propulsion, and it's like, oh, this is horrible. This isn't me running. Right. Right. Um, whereas the New Balance uh, strike a nice. Nice, a nice balance. Yeah. Um, and also the the latest ons, uh, and I'm completely blanking on the name of them, but um, the model. Um, but I'll put that in the show notes. I'll look them up and oh, put yeah. them in the show notes. But they're they're super lightweight and super um, just a really nice, a decent amount of road feel for a, a shoe that's got a carbon plate in it. Yeah. Um, we just did a big big story on on you know obviously they just had their big IPO. Um, oh, yeah. so we'll try to throw that link in the show notes too. It was, yep. yeah, we, we did a rundown of, uh, on's best five shoes for triathletes, um, yeah. and a little bit of background about the company themselves. So they just need to figure out a way to not get rock, uh, rocks and stones caught in the, every single run I do in a pair of on shoes. It always, it's now become like a, a thing. I know. I, I know. And I run so much trails now where I'm like, I can't wear the ons. They just, no. oh my gosh. Come on, on, do something about it. I know. Um, but yeah, but I know you also wanted to talk about run smartwatches because obviously that's a huge thing yes. in, in the tri world when it comes to running and training and performance. Um, yeah. Not, not all watches are created equal. No. And I think that uh, triathletes need very specific kind of smartwatches because mm -hmm. um, just kind of based on what we do, you know, you need something that works with pool swimming, but also open water swimming. Um, yeah. They should have a triathlon function. Um, the good ones will have like a, a multi-sport or like a brick function. So you can just mm -hmm. keep doing like recurring, you know, bike run, bike run, bike run, bike run, whatever. Yeah. Um, but not all of them have that. So it's worth some research. Um, so like kind of my favorite things, the things that I look for, cause I've tried almost every smartwatch out there and spent so much time on all of them. Um, my big thing is like simplicity. Like mm -hmm. I need a simple design, something that I can understand quickly, you know, when you're tired, something that just works seamlessly with what you're doing, your workouts, you plug them in simply. Um, you know, you don't have to spend an hour loading up your watch or, you know, figuring out what it's got. Um, I actually think battery life is super important for triathletes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the funny thing is like a lot of these smartwatch companies, they market the big battery life to like outdoor people. Like mm -hmm. you're going to, you know, backpack on the Appalachian trail and you need, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of, you know, GPS and sure. Like, for those people, you know, that would be important. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the reality is triathletes probably work out more than most other 
athletes. Yeah, um, total hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, and especially in hours with a smartwatch. You know, if you're using yeah. it for an open water swim, if you're using it for your pool swim, if you're using it for your runs, um, some people use them on the bike, but you know, I mean, you could, but I just, I don't know if everyone does. Um, but so you need like, you need a lot of battery life because the other thing is triathletes are busy. You know, like yeah. I never remember to plug in my watch at the end of the day. Like yeah. my wife has an Apple watch and she has to plug it in at the end of every day or else it's useless and i mm-hmm. always forget so i like the watches now that just ping at you when you need to like a reminder that, oh, yeah. you know, to, to to charge the battery or whatever like on one, the chorus that i use it always pings up at me when it's like getting low so yeah and not like dead low like you know like 10 yeah. like percent yeah. yeah 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 um and some of them even have this i mean i can't remember off the top of my head which ones but some of them you will will even say um you know you're gonna have x amount of hours in this training mode of battery yes. life so you click on trail run and it's like okay you've got two hours in this mode with all the things you're going to use you know gp yeah. music blah 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 blah. so yeah. you know is your run longer than two hours maybe take a minute to you know to charge it before you go yeah um so yeah i think i think battery life is actually really important um, yeah and because it can just you know especially for triathletes who are da- so data driven you know you're out you know, two hours into your four and a half hour ride and you've got to do intervals and you're watching power or, you know, you're out on a long run and you've got hill reps coming up. Um, your watch is dead. You have no idea how far you went, you know, your intervals or anything. I mean, it can literally wreck, you know, same thing for an open water swim. It can wreck your workout if it's something you depend on. Yeah. And then also ease of use too. Like how, how easy are they to like navigate through the screens and you know, like pop, find the menu and, you know, are they intuitive? Could you hand it to a six-year-old and they work it or not? Right. You know, like that's always a, for me, a good, a good test. Like yeah. some of the garment, some of the garments that I've picked up, I've, I've been like, oh, oh what's gosh. going on? So many what's things. What's going on here? Same with Sunto. Oh my gosh. I, I know, I've never liked Suntos, but. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're the best for triathletes. Um, but yeah. And I mean, like the reality is, you know, some of us have a six-year-old brain at the end of a run, you know, like, like you're tired or, you're gonna, the, or at the start of a day right, the start of the day, or just always like, you know, we always have triathletes are always in a state of six year old brain. So, right. um, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's super important. Um, I know, you know, we're always in and out with, uh, the smart watches. So being able to connect, disconnect, reconnect to your smartwatch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all those functions still work. Um, yeah. some watches do this beautifully. Some still struggle with it, you know? Yeah. Um, being able to like look at, you know, the data post run. I think that's super important and just yeah. be like, okay, this was better, worse, the same. Yep. Struggled here. I struggled there. Move yep. on. You know, yeah. not- how easy is, can you digest the, how easily can you digest the information and move right. on? And yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of them use, you know, proprietary performance scores that don't mean anything. Um, yeah. so that, that's, you know, that's a thing. I think a lot of people, want something that has like a mix of lifestyle and training functions. Yeah. Um, I think triathletes should look more at training functions yeah. um, because, you know, the reality is that you're going to be using that more. That's why you're buying yeah. the watch. Yeah. Um, sometimes this will mean, you know, buying a Koros or a Garmin instead of an Apple watch or a Suunto yeah. Um, yeah. because they're just not as powerful. They don't connect to as many things. Um, they're not as you know robust for the kind of workouts you might do or for the data you might want or for the battery life you're looking for, you know, yeah. a gorgeous color touchscreen is fun, but you know, 
have it might not have the training functionalities that you really need or want as a as a triathlete right. and it's going to sap your battery and yeah. you know like you're just going to be frustrated with it um i have one watch that i'm testing right now it's got a touch screen got a lot of stuff going on on it but because it's like you know it's almost like an old computer you know when you scroll with it it has a lag it takes a while, you know, you hit the lap oh, button and it's like two seconds go by, then the lap goes and you're like a beautiful watch. I love so much about it, but you know, I, it needs to work right away. It needs to have like, you know, crisp, you know, processing power and stuff. And yeah, so that's just kind of another thing we, with the lifestyle watches. There's less of a, a focus on that. Yeah. But some of your favorites, I know you like the, um, you've always been a big Coros guy and you like the Vertex, right? Yes. Which is, which is obviously if money is no object because it's yeah. a $700 watch. It's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. so if triathletes listening to this, if you've never heard of Coros, it's C-O-R-O-S. Um, they're like one of the, you know, industry insider favorites. Um, yeah. I, I just love them. I've got the pace too. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's like, you know, it's a very simplistic or in terms of price, what is it like a $200 watch? 200 bucks. But I think it kind of delivers what you'd expect from a $350, $400 watch. You know? Oh, easily. It's, it's one um, of those ones where I think they mispriced it. Like it's got open water swimming, um, you know, obviously biking, running, running with power. Yeah, um, running with power. Yeah. Yeah, good battery. I've been using it for all my runs since probably the spring. Yeah. And probably just done my biggest summer of running and I've used it for pretty much every single run. And it's I, like I rock solid. It. Yeah. doesn't yeah. crash. Yeah. The yeah. Like yeah. you hit the button, it does the thing. Like, yeah. Um, that, that's my like favorite bang for your buck watch. Like if you were just yeah. like, you just need try stuff. You're not doing anything super fancy. 200 bucks. Coros pays two. You're done. Like just yeah. forget it. It's, it's not like, life. A, yeah. Battery, battery life is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like 50 grams. It's like you're wearing like a bracelet. Like it yeah. doesn't even feel like you're wearing any, I mean, it's not the coolest looking watch. Like it's not like a going out watch, but, um, but yeah, it's just something you just, you know, throw so it in your bag. Triathletes wear about the watch that they care oh, out. Man, I mean, clearly not. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, Hamlet, I wore it to dinner last night. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, it's cool. <laughs> it's kind of got that swatch oh, well. watch vibe maybe. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Swatch watch. Um, but, um, but no, if we're, if we're talking about like my favorite ones for like, I mean, bang for your buck, Coros pays two, done. I don't even, yeah, there's easy. nothing in the ballpark. Yeah. Um, but if we're talking like budget, no limit, Coros, the new, the Vertex 2, 700 bucks, like, I think it's like 60 day battery life. Like, Jeez. the biggest problem with that watch is losing the charger cable because you're just <laughs> like, you I just charge? never do yeah. it. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, yeah. And it's got, you know, built in color maps, onboard music, running oh, with wow. power. It's like, like that's the one you've reviewed that recently, right? Yeah, we did an yeah. in-depth review on that. Um, yeah. It'll be in our gift guide too. It's it's a favorite. But it is seven hundred yeah. bucks. I mean, yeah, you get a yeah. lot, but it costs yeah. a lot. Um, just under that, I like the Gorman, the Garmin Forerunner nine four five LTE, um, mm -hmm. six hundred fifty bucks. That one has a really cool cell tracking. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to buy a subscription. I think it's like ten bucks a month, maybe even less. Um, but it'll transmit your location without a smartphone. So, oh, so it cool. tracks you wherever you go. Like I like it for open water swimming. I like it for like long trail runs. Yeah. Um, you can use it to summon emergency uh, assistance if you need it. So that's kind of like a, that's a cool function that nobody has. Mm -hmm. um, and it's got the full range of Garmin stuff, you know, built in maps and music yeah. and data measurement. Um, it struggles on battery. It's not my favorite for battery um, because it's doing so much. Even if yeah, you turn I was gonna off, say, it's got a lot going on in the background. When, yeah, yeah. Even if you turn off all the bells and whistles, it's still not 
a mind-blowing battery. Um, but yeah, and then the last one I've, I've been checking out lately, this is the one I'm currently reviewing, is the Polar Grit X, um, mm. 500 bucks. One of the nicest looking ones I think I've used. So, mm-hmm. you know, if if the Coros Pace 2 is not your... I could wear it out to out, dinner. Your outerwear, you yeah, your eating wear <laughs> um, style of choice. Uh, the the X has, you know, built-in running with power. It actually has some cool lifestyle integration stuff with weather and music control and dusk and dawn. And um, so it's kind of, it, it's cool. The battery life is not great. Touchscreen is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's got really good sleep recovery performance tracking. I think Polar does that probably yeah. better than anyone else in terms of, you know, accuracy. So that's my, yeah, my four favorites. It's probably the, the Vertex 2, the 4Runner 945, the Grit X, and then for budget, Pace 2. Definitely. Very cool. Good to know with the holidays coming up. Chris's, exactly. Chris's Giguru gift guide. That's a lot, that's a lot of Gs. <laughs> that is a lot I of Gs. The 4G. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Thank you, Chris. As always, it has been a pleasure and very uh, insightful. Thank you for your knowledge and uh, we'll chat to you next time. Thanks for having me, UK. You bet. Bye. Okay, so hopefully you're now a little more in the know when it comes to run training and gear and you're all set to enjoy a fine fall and winter of running. Thank you for joining us here on this month's Fitter and Faster. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Fitter and Faster by Triathlete wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed the show, please feel free to rate and review us. It helps us out and it helps others like you to find us. We'll be back next month. But until then, happy training.